Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at Romans 2, the question of who Paul is addressing in this chapter and the implications that has for our understanding of the book and Paul's theology. Today, we're talking to Dr. Matthew Thiessen. Dr. Thiessen is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, which, for those who don't know, is in Canada. Um, Matt is the author of a number of articles on early Judaism and the New Testament, and most relevant to our discussion today, he's the author of the book, Paul and the Gentile Problem. Uh, thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. I should also say that, Matt, you you are a professor where I did my, well, I guess I did both my undergraduate degree in biochemistry at McMaster, uh-huh. and then I ended up coming back to do an MA, though That's I right. think I left right before you got there. Is that yeah, right? shortly before I got there. Yeah. Okay. okay. All yeah. right. And I'm outnumbered here by Canadians, yeah. so I'll just try and keep up and decipher the accent, and we'll, we'll see what we can do. Throw in an A every once in a while, you'll be fine. There we go. All right. Good. Uh, so, Matt, we want to start out by asking you, what first drew you to studying Paul's letter to the Romans? Yeah, that's a, I could, I could spend an hour talking about that, but I would say, you know, in terms of, of the book uh, project itself, it was when I was writing my dissertation on circumcision and realizing that not all ancient Jews thought about circumcision the same way, especially as it applied to non-Jews. Um, and that some Jews thought Gentiles shouldn't get circumcised or that if they did, it didn't matter. That didn't make them Jews. It made me think, wait a minute, what is Paul doing in Romans 2, which, which is sort of a larger interest I've had around Paul, Paul's letters in his relationship to Judaism and the Jewish law. Now, a follow-up question that I've wanted to ask you for a long time is, okay, that your research on circumcision led you to Romans, but why were you interested in circumcision in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question too. Um, <laughs> Again, I think it, it, the, the easy answer is to say I'm really interested in um, the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And one of the hot-button topics uh, in, in the first century of this Jesus movement was the question of circumcision, this, this right prescribed in Genesis 17. And, uh, you know, it's been sort of a long uh, Christian tradition that, that Christianity just quickly disposes of circumcision and sees it as sort of, you know, this fleshly right that has no value. Uh, it's what matters inside. Uh, and, you know, I've long been troubled by some of that in the, in the supersessionism behind that. But also just, uh, I think I'm interested in, in bodily practices uh, that maybe modern people or some modern people find odd or weird, and just trying to figure out, dig down and find out what, uh, what value, what meaning these bodily practices had in antiquity. Right. Now, Matt, what do you find most difficult about this chapter, chapter two? <laughs> yeah, uh, there is a, a long, venerable tradition in Pauline scholarship to start every article or book one is working on by saying, this is the most difficult passage in all the, all the writings of Paul. Um, I think that's just sort of true across the board. It's all difficult. Um, and I think Romans 2 is, it's a very difficult text. Uh, for a lot of different reasons, but um, 
I think trying to fi- figure out what Paul's purpose here in Romans 2 is, I think we have a relatively good sense of Romans 1 uh, in some ways, uh, and then 3 and following, but 2, especially in the last 20 or so years, uh, there's been a lot of disagreement around what's, why does Paul write these verses? What's the sort of rhetorical purpose? How is it supposed to convince his readers and what's he trying to get across to them? So there are all kinds of exegetical details that one can pick and pull at, and I know some of the questions today probably will do that. But how to put all these little pieces together into, this is Paul's major point. This is where he's trying to drive. That's, I think, really hard to to figure out and still very contested. And how do you see the major point that Paul is making here in this chapter fitting into his argument in the book as a whole? So I think there are are, multiple arguments happening in Romans, but um, one of the arguments, so Paul makes this very clear, uh, just backing up briefly, very clear in the way he frames the book, the um, epistolary uh, intro and conclusion or bookends, as uh, Jeffrey Wyman has talked about, Romans 1 and Romans 15 frame it very clearly that this is a letter written to non-Jews, which is not something that most readers think about. But that's what Paul continually signals. His intended audience is a Gentile audience. And one of the things he's trying to convey, and I think where Romans 2 uh, fits in here, is Paul is trying to get across to his Gentile readers in Rome that if they think uh, the Jewish law solves the, the problems that are particular to Gentiles, they're, they're uh, going to be very disappointed. So from Romans 1 to Romans 3 in particular, there's this effort by Paul to, to undermine any confidence a Gentile might be tempted to put into the Jewish law as a way to... Um, curry favor with god right now um your reading of chapter two is going to be unfamiliar to many of our listeners i think right Uh, but i think this really goes to demonstrate uh the value of biblical scholarship right in that uh, biblical scholars can find uh new and interesting and some of this is actually not that new uh, of what you have to say about Romans too, right? Some of it has a tradition in the in, in some of the church fathers, yep. or particularly in Origen, correct? That's right. Uh, you know, Origen early on, and, and others have sort of picked this up. They've they've wondered about who, and, and this has been a question for for really, yeah, since since the early church was reading these texts, who's being addressed here? Yeah, uh, and I think when we read this text, especially for those of us who who those of us who grew up in in the Christian tradition. It's just sort of uh, an unrelenting and an unrefined attack on anybody who's self-righteous. Um, you think you're you're good enough, you're not. And the whole point is to sort of undermine, in general, any human confidence in the human ability to do good before God. And I think, you know, that's sort of underlying Paul's theology, but his rhetoric, uh, rhetorical flourishes in, in the way he crafts this is, is really pinpointed. Um, on an ethnic level in a way that I think most modern readers don't see. Um, they just see, don't put your confidence in works, put it in, in Jesus, which is true. That's what Paul's saying. But the way he says it is crafted, particularly for the first century and for a first century non-Jewish audience. So Paul repeatedly in chapter two, repeatedly uses this, the second person singular pronoun, you, right? You have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Now, that's a marked shift, right, in terms of the use of the pronoun from chapter one, where Paul repeatedly uses third person, they. 
So why does Paul shift now from that person, you know, what looks like a castigation of the they in chapter one and to now hit up the you and who are, who is the you he's trying to castigate here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that is, I think the central question. Just let me back up to Romans one, Ronnie, you said, you mentioned yeah. there's this frequent uh, use of they, the third person uh, and it's, clear, I think, that Paul is, is distinguishing between himself in the they of Romans 1, 18 through 32. Uh, we don't, again, we don't see it. And if you use the NRSB or almost any other English, modern English translation, it'll say there'll be like that little um, subtitle above, above the passage in your English translations. It'll say something like the universal guilt or the universal sinfulness or something of all yeah. humanity. Yeah. The, NRSV, I don't, I don't, yeah. yeah. the NRSV says the guilt of humankind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As though, you know, all humans are sinful and this is what Paul's about. Paul thinks all humans are sinful, but I don't think that's what Romans 1, 18 through 32 is about. If you go through carefully and read it, these are people who know about God, not from the law, but from nature, as, as uh, Paul says in verse 19 and 20, this, Paul is not accusing these people of knowing God's law and not doing it here. It's you see God, you know God from creation, and you are guilty. And what are you guilty of in the first instance of abandoning the one living God and taking up non worship of non-living images, uh, really swapping out immortality for mortality as one's, was one's uh, reason for living. and. Uh, this is sort of the quintessential Jewish accusation against non-Jews. And if you read a, a text like the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, which is in the Apocrypha, Deuterocanon, you'll see many of the same things in the Wisdom of Solomon. This is specifically targeted at non-Jewish history and non-Jewish sin. They've abandoned God. It's led into sinfulness. It's led into all these um, practices that uh, most ancient Jews had problems with and thought were predominantly Gentile sins, not Jewish sins. And mm -hmm. that's what Paul's doing in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So it seems like he's saying, so this is getting to your question, Ronnie, sorry. Mm -hmm. He seems like he's saying, look, that's what they're like, these pagan Gentiles out there worshiping their wrong <laughs> gods, doing their bad things. And then in Romans 2, 1, there's a trap that gets uh, set and, and uh, activated. And the accusation now turns to Paul's interlocutor, whoever that is. Who is it? <laughs> Many Christian readers have said, ah, that's where, that's where Paul gets the Jews. Um, because they aren't like these Gentiles. They have God's law. They do some things. They know all these things, but they're just as guilty as the Gentiles. Okay, possibly. But are we certain about that? And in my book and, and the work I've done, I'm, I'm trying to make the case, and I'm following other, other scholars here as well, uh, like Stan Stowers, especially, um, who claim, wait a minute, this is just a person who judges the people of Romans 1. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a Jew. They might be a non-Jew who is particularly concerned about righteousness and worshiping uh, the one true God. Uh, and I think quite possibly it's a Gentile who has Judaized, who's picked up Jewish practices, is worshiping Israel's God, looks at his you know, Gentile neighbors and says, ooh, shame on them. And Paul's saying, well, you're actually not any better. You think you're better off, but you're not. And so Romans 2 then is Paul trying to show, trying to convince this interlocutor, you think you're in a better position than they are, but you're, you're deluded. And now I'm going to show that how that's the case.
uh, is what Paul says. So just as a background question, when you think about this Judaizing Gentile, so a Gentile who's taken on Jewish practices, yep. is this just an interlocutor that Paul has in mind in yeah. this chapter, or is it that the general audience that he has in mind throughout the book as a whole? Fantastic. Um, I think throughout the book, we see uh, the interlocutor lurking. We see it, I think, in Romans 7 most clearly again where Paul says, you know, you've got the law, you who know the law. Um, and then he, he gives sort of an explanation of it. And he's, he depicts, I think, that eye of Romans 7, which is a really contested uh, passage to read. One of the most difficult passages in Paul. Uh, and it really is. It's really hard. Um, who's the eye of Romans 7? Uh, you know, a lot of Christians read it as, oh, this is our own, you know, sinful condition. And we know God's law. We want to do it. And we keep, we keep sinning. And it's sort of the internal psychological battles we all face uh, and disappointment we face with our own sinfulness. Um, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. This is a Gentile in Paul's mind, I'm convinced, who's picked up God's law, Jewish law, and has thought, because some Jews thought this too, that the Jewish law was a great way to take someone immoral and make them moral. It, it actually was sort of God's great tool for uh, addressing the moral condition of the human. Um, it's a therapy, uh, therapy for desire, as Martha Nussbaum has, has mentioned. And I think that's what is happening. There's a Gentile who thinks I've got the Jewish law, now I can do it. And Paul's saying, hold it, you've got the Jewish law, you approve of what it says, but your flesh is still fleshly and you're still doing all the things you shouldn't be doing. It doesn't actually have the power um, to change your sort of constitution to make you do the things you, you now want to do. And so I think that interlocutor lurks all the way through. Yeah, it just quickly, and I think it represents Paul's very concern. You see this clearly in Galatians. I think you see it in Philippians as well, um, and a little bit in First Corinthians. But I think Paul doesn't know the, uh, most people in Rome. He's coming there, and he's worried that there are Gentiles in Rome who either have Judaized or will Judaize, and he's trying to say, that's a dead end. And so the interlocutor really represents in some ways, Paul's ideal audience. They're Gentiles, Gentiles who are interested in the Jewish law and maybe even have picked it up uh, and applied it to themselves and are maybe even, or have applied circumcision. And Paul's saying, time out. You think you've solved it, but you really, really haven't. Um, you need, you need Jesus for this, not circumcision. So Paul is trying to undercut any confidence that someone would have in, in obedience to the law. But later in the chapter here in 6 to 14, he seems to emphasize good deeds a good deal. Right. So he says uh, he will repay talking about God. He will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good, seek for glory. He will give eternal life for those who obey not the truth, but wickedness. There will be wrath and fury or verse 12. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So um, is Paul here advocating for a kind of justification by works? And is this at odds with things that he says? later in the letter where he says people are justified by faith and not by works of the law in Romans yep. 3, 21 or 28. <laughs> a nice easy one for you. No, yeah. these, these are the, I think these are the hard questions in, in the text. And I think they're hard for, they're hard for anybody, I think. Um, 
if you have sort of a, you know, a more traditional reading of Romans too, or, you know, most, most Christians, the way they read this within sort of a Protestant framework that strikes, I think all of us as, Oh, what is Paul doing here? How does this fit with salvation by faith? Not, not through works and salvation by grace, not through works. Um, I think Paul, I don't, I don't pretend to have all the answers here. I don't have, I think, an uh, answer that I'm satisfied with yet. Um, someone does, I'd love to love to hear it. But um, and, and So chime in. I think Paul, like most, if not all ancient Jews, thought uh, good works were absolutely central and part of salvation. Uh, and evil deeds were not. Uh, you know, in Ephesians 2, if Paul, Ephesians 2.10, whether Paul wrote this text or not, and that's disputed, uh, the, the author talks about being created to do good works. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is sort of, I think it's actually part of salvation. It's that's what even constitutes salvation is the ability to do good works. Um, and it results in the sort of it's, this is the, the sowing of the seed and the harvest is eternal life. So how those good works, how one has the power to do those good works. I don't think Paul is here addressing, but he's agreeing with his interlocutor. Good works leads to eternal life. Uh, it's all part of this process. Is it the sort of, is it a reward for the good works? Is this payment for the good works? I don't think so in Paul's mind, particularly. I think it's all, even the good works are already a gift and payment for being being saved, so to speak. But I, I'm not, again, I don't know that I have this parsed out perfectly in my own, in my own mind. How do you understand this, Ronnie? Thanks. Well, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I mean, my sense is that Paul never dispenses with the necessity for doing good works. If, like, if God is just and He continues to be just, then God acquits the uh, the pious, the godly, and He brings condemnation on the ungodly. So, I think that remains for Paul. And the, the question is how how do you, how does Paul going to resolve that? How does God resolve that in terms of bringing someone who is ungodly, which for Paul I think is both Jews and Gentiles fall into that bucket of mm-hmm. impious? How is he, how is God going to move people into that place where they now do the good works? Right to so that you know so, so that God can acquit that person. It seems like the faith for Paul is this is in some ways the seed. I don't know, Matt. Tell me what you think about this. Is that is that the one who believes in Christ? That's the seed for uh, righteousness. And so once you're implanted in some ways with that seed, the you know the result is you're 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 pious. The ungodly person, right? has to be justified. For Paul, you're justified by faith. An ungodly person is justified by faith, right? Um, but you also have to have works here in Romans 2, right? It's not the hearer of the law who's justified, but the doer of the works. So somehow the faith in Christ, you know, is once is, an, is like the seed that results in the doing of the... So Paul wants to emphasize that seed, that first part. He's going to want to say you're justified by faith. That's kind of the the fundamental thing that results in the good works. Right. I don't know. That's, yeah. that's a stab it, at it, Matt. What do you I, think? If I could chime in. So, so first of all, I'm just pulling up here a couple, couple passages. We all think, especially those, sorry, especially those of us who've been raised in broadly Protestant circles yeah. that Paul in good works don't mix. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, again, we can dispute whether Paul wrote these letters or not, but they're within the Pauline tradition. Colossians 1.10 talks about uh, bearing fruit in every good work. 
Second Thessalonians 2.17, every good work in word. First Timothy 2.10, again, doing good works. All this language of good works. Paul, Paul's not, yeah. oh, nay, nay, don't, don't do the good work stuff. He right. loves the good works. They're good right. to Paul. Right. Um, uh, so I think that's one thing really to stress. And I think, Ronnie, yeah. you're right about the, the being implanted. Faith implants you in this new, this new field. Uh, but I think it's in particular, it's a field now that whose soil consists of, of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Before you're in the flesh and, and good luck getting good works to sprout out of the flesh. It's not going to happen. Right. So that's what I think he does in Romans 7. Yeah. I think here he's conceding good works are really important. I'm not even conceding. He's agreeing. Yeah. He just assumes they're important because yeah. all ancient Jews thought they were important. Yeah. The question is, what's the sort of foundation for the good works? Right. And, and our English really stinks at getting some of Paul across with the, you use justify, justification language. Yeah. It's awful. It's so common and there's no good solution. But the language has to do with justice and righteousness and yeah. righteous. Uh, and we distinguish those two in English, justified and righteous, even though they're the same word in Greek. Yeah. And justification, part of justification in, right, in, in being righteousified is not just, and this is where some Protestant um, hearers may have trouble, it's not just this forensic declaration for Paul. It's not just you're declared righteous. It's that God actually infuses believers in Paul's mind with a power to live justly and live righteously. Right. And so that, and that's salvation um, is not only, but that's an integral part of salvation. So for Paul, you have to have these good works. It's maybe uh, indicative of what comes in the future eternal life. I'm just, the simplistic way that I've heard this put is that good works are the fruit and not the root of salvation. Would you want to push back on that simplistic? I mean, obviously it's trying to simplify a lot of um, complex stuff. I, that's a, it's an interesting um, image, an analogy. I guess I'm, I am not a plant biologist here, <laughs> but I would, I would love to know what plant biologists, I'm just, this is off the top of my head. Yeah, I would love sure. to know what plant biologists would say about where does the root begin and, you know, the rest of the plant continue? That's, uh-huh. that's a really easy. And as you said, well, it's simplistic and it's simplistic for a reason. We're trying to get across and there's a lot of anxiety around. You can't earn your way into heaven. Um, okay. I think that's un- uncontroversial when we're reading Paul. Paul doesn't think you can, you know, buy your way right. into heaven or you can do enough good deeds to earn your way into heaven. Although I don't think Paul's main concern is, You've got to do enough good deeds to get into heaven, and that's what he's fighting. Paul right. is uh, one of our one of our well, one of my former colleagues and one of Ronnie's former uh, teachers, Steve Westerholm, calls Paul an anthropological pessimist, and mm-hmm. I think this is exactly right. Mm-hmm. He is so pessimistic about the human condition. There's no chance a human can do good. Um, they aren't constitutionally capable of doing good, and so it's not about they can't get quite enough you know, good deeds on, on the right side of the ledger or whatever. It's that humans are just innately uh, given to desires and passions and weakness. Uh, and so they're never going to do what is required, the good deeds that, that uh, are required um, or expected. And so the good news is for Paul, they don't need to, 
that God has done this in Christ and is now infusing them with something absolutely new. And it's sort of like, you know, moral steroids, uh, right. this, this gift of the Holy Spirit that's going to give us to them. So, it's a fertilizer in the ground. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. uh, the right. analogy with the roots is not. Well, and also, the root the, is always God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. The root's always God for right. Paul. Yeah. But I think it, the root was always God for ancient Jews in general. Right. Okay. Uh, so I think this is, you know, one of the larger concerns I have in my, in my book and a lot of, a lot of Paul scholars today have. Uh, and I think we're really concerned about how this gets preached out in the world is that you get this implicit and often very explicit. Christianity is a religion of grace. Uh, well, it's a relationship, right? And all others are religions, which already, you know, that's a very common thing. It, it already sets this antagonistic and when in relation to Judaism, supersessionistic relationship up. Ancient Jews believed God was gracious. They maybe differ, differed over how God was gracious and things like that, mm-hmm. but they all believed God was the root of any salvation at all. Um, how exactly you got the, the fruit to grow, you know, quickly and abundantly, they maybe disagreed about, but it wasn't that they disagreed over whether humans could earn their salvation or God had right. to provide it. Yeah, they also disagreed on the anthropological condition, right? On the condition of human beings, right? So, so some Jews like Paul are very pessimistic <laughs> about human beings. Others are a little bit more optimistic that human beings, they have the law, they can do it yeah. because they have it, that kind right. of thing. Yep. Um, which Paul, you know, seems to dis- would disagree pretty sharply with that position. Definitely. But, yep. Uh, well, let's move on to another riddle <laughs> of a verse. Uh, in verse 14, Paul says that Gentiles who do not possess the law uh, do instinctively what the law requires. Uh, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. I mean, there are a bunch of different options that scholars <laughs> have thrown out for who the heck are these Gentiles? No. Are they, do they possess the law by nature or is it they're doing the law by nature? I mean, what, what how, how do you kind of try to untangle some of that? Yeah. Uh, so I will stress that first verse 13 is really important here. It's not hearing, but doing that mm-hmm. matters. Uh, it actually really reminds me of a passage in Josephus where, where uh, a Pharisee says this to um, a foreign ruler who's reading the Jewish law, but not circumcised and says, you're reading it, but it's doers. You have to do it. And then the, the Gentile ruler, uh, Isates, goes and gets circumcised. So it's very similar to that story, mm-hmm. that, that sort of idea. Of course, you don't just, it's not just good when my kids listen to my instructions. I much prefer it when they just do them. Um, and someday, you know, in the eschaton, they will. So just um, to read um, verse 13, yeah. for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be Sorry, justified. yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's all, again, this is all about action here, not just hearing, not just thinking, not just believing. Uh, so I'm, I, I think we can't take 14, that claim about the Gentiles out of context. It's about doing. Does Paul think there are Gentiles out there who live righteously? That's a hard one. Um, that's a hard one for me because I see Romans 1, 18 through 32, which we which talked about, mm-hmm. where we see what looks like a universal indictment against the Gentile world with not a whole lot of you know, nuance about, <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking, I'm not, not all Gentiles are like that. Um, there are a few good apples in the mix. It right. sounds very much like they're all bad because right. they all commit idolatry. That doesn't mean every action they do is evil. Um, they... 
do some things instinctive. Well, I don't, I don't love that NRSV translation, but they do some mm-hmm. things, uh, even though they don't have the law. I think it's actually, so that do instinctively translates in the Greek, um, a Greek word, phuse, uh, phusis, which has to do with nature. And I think it's actually when Gentiles who do not by nature or by birth have the law. So they're like constitutionally and, and culturally already um, behind the eight ball. They're already at a, at a disadvantage because they don't have God's law. But even without having it, they sometimes do what is right. So they're showing... Uh, sort of it's a natural theology, I think. They're showing that all humans have some innate capacity to know what's good and what's bad. Uh, this doesn't mean these Gentiles are perfectly good or saved in Paul's mind, but that they sometimes get things right, uh, even apart from knowing the Jewish law. I mean, uh, the, the Romans 1, 18 to 32 seems yeah. to me to suggest that Paul thinks that Gentiles know quite a bit about what they yeah. ought to do and ought not to do. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. Ronnie, thank you for saying that. So, you know, God, it says that they have certain knowledge, right? In Romans 1, 18 through, I think, 22, they have certain knowledge, but they've, they've willfully handed over or, or uh, passed up worshiping the one true God for idols. And because of this, God hands them over. But it doesn't mean that they're oblivious to uh, certain things. And, you know, no one, I don't think there's anyone in history who's ever said of any, you know, outside group of their religion, those people are always, always, you know, doing evil things. They, you know, Christians may say they're always in a state of sin. Paul may have thought that they're always in this condition of idolatry, but just because they worship idols, doesn't mean everything they do is evil. They feed their kids. They, you know, they may help a neighbor. These are things that are right and good. They're just within a larger context of, of um, sinfulness and idolatry. So I think that's what Paul's trying to get across there. What are these Gentiles? They are, uh, they're still the Gentiles of Romans one eighteen who sometimes do, um, do some good things basically. I think so. You're, you're, so you're not you're not for the reading of these are uh, Gentiles who are who are basically uh, they're you know they believe in Christ they're Christ followers and so Paul is saying that wow the law is written on their heart you see so one reading is that yeah um, they now do the law the, right and they do what the law requires you know, because it's been written on them, right? Yeah. It's been written on their heart, um, which some people say, oh, look, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And they'll say, no, these are justified Gentiles because in Romans 1, 18 to 32, the Paul's, you know, <laughs> assessment is so negative. And look at this. This is surprising that they uh, they now are basically doing the law. It's written on their heart. I mean, this seems really good. <laughs> I, would, I would love to know your thoughts here, uh, Ronnie or Will. I don't, I don't take it that way. Okay. Um, I, I don't take it that way because I don't, I don't think Paul has opened up yet the world of like in the narrative here in well, the sort of, you know, underlying narrative of, of what he's writing in this not narrative, this letter it's this right now. He's just trying to get to the point that if you're a Gentile, you're in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's not, I don't think he's, already pointing ahead to there's a solution and the law does get written on your heart in Christ. Um, I don't take it that way. I don't know. I don't know how yeah. you feel about that. I'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. I, so my 
read is that it is uh, Paul is being coy. Okay. Now my read of Romans two is that it's not a Gentile. Sure. You, it's, it's a Jewish you. Okay. Okay. But, I mean, you know, I have to hang up right now, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, that's fine. But I think what he's doing, because I think he's, he is, he, when he switches from Romans one eighteen to yeah. two, he's now in going to encapsulate the Jewish you yep. into the predicament of the Gentiles of chapter one. Yep. So he, he turns it. This is a typical reading. Yeah. It goes back um, a little bit to Augustine. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. an old reading. Um, yeah. But um, what he's doing now with these Gentiles is he's telling the Jewish, you look, you you privilege, you think you have an eschatological favor before God, and in the last day you're going to be acquitted, you're going to be found favorable by God because you possess the law. Yeah. That the law is a kind of antidote and that somehow you're safe and Gentiles who don't, they're unsafe, according to this position. And he's saying, no, you have to actually do it. So I think Paul's kind of indicting, it, you know, Jews as a whole because yeah. he's indicted Gentiles also. And yep. then he's going to bring up these Gentiles without identifying them as Christ believers because he's like, look, there are even Gentiles who don't have the law who are doing the law and they will be justified. Now, I do think he thinks these are justified Gentiles because he's just said that it is not the hearers of the law who are justified, who are righteous, but the doers of the law who are justified. And now he then explicitly says again that these Gentiles are doing what the law requires. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of want to see a tight connection between okay. that doing of the law and, ju and being and justification. Yeah. So I, so, but he's, 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 he's kind of hedging, like he's, he's playing it close. He's not going to tell you how it is they're doing it come later in the letter okay uh, he's then even putting the jewish interlocutor yeah. but that's kind of i mean it's, i could be totally it's Paul. we could all we could it, all it be, be very imaginative uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm not even gonna weigh in so <laughs> um what does it have to go on now to versus yeah i mean do you have any like initial reactions to that reading or yeah, I mean, I, when I look at 15, I'm trying to figure out how 15 fits uh, some of that. I, and I, again, I think these are really these are really tough. Yeah. Paul is not uh, as simple as I think we've made him uh, at times. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, 15, we have the, the Paul going on to say their conscience also bears witness of these Gentiles who, who are doing the law that's written on their hearts. And their yeah. conflicting thoughts will accuse uh, or even uh, excuse. Yeah. So. Um, I, I yeah. guess I, I'm not, I feel like Paul's, he's put something out there and he's, he's maybe not even sure, <laughs> like the, the way he ends it with sort of an uncertainty around, um, accusation or ex excusing makes me wonder <laughs> if he's like, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe there are Gentiles who are doing lots of great things, but, uh, at, at when, when Christ or when God judges them, everything's going to be revealed, uh, but yeah. I don't. I don't think the point is. I don't know. Like I said, I, I think this is maybe a little more hypothetical uh, uh, in yeah. Paul's mind than he's got this real distinct category of yeah. There are good righteous Gentiles, which is you see this in Jewish texts. Uh, there are good righteous Gentiles who don't know everything. They aren't Jewish. They don't have to be Jewish, but they know implicitly some sort of natural law that they follow that uh, suffices. I don't think Paul thinks. There's any category, I don't think, I may be wrong, but there's any category of Gentile out there who's uh, a righteous Gentile who doesn't need 
Jesus. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you that. would agree yeah. with that. You're yeah, saying yeah. this is uh this is Paul pointing to right now in my world as Paul, these Gentiles have come into existence. Just goes to show the Jewish law isn't the way to righteous living. Is that what you're saying? Right. Well, yeah, I'm saying he's he's trying to sit. He, he's trying to because the whole category is Jew Gentile. And yeah. he's, going, he's going to then explain how it is that there could be these Gentiles who uh, are now doing the law. And for him, it's through Christ and okay. the spirit. Yeah. But he's not going to signal that now because in the rhetorical punch. Right. He's he's just trying to level the playing field. OK. Let's see how this plays out in the following okay. verses. Right, Let's see if that helps illuminate any of this for us. Because yep. in verse 17, Paul returns to this you again after going off on that kind of theological tangent that we've just discussed. Uh, and so, <laughs> verse 17 says, um, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation uh, to God, uh, and but then he goes on to say that this you transgresses Israel's law. So, how have we shifted to a Jew now? Because he says, if you call yourself a Jew, uh, yep. or is this something else going on here? Is this a, a, a hypocritical Jew or is this a Gentile pretending to be a Jew? What's going on? Yep. So again, the common reading, and I understand why it's there. Common reading is, this is Paul now really clarifying, listen, my fellow Jew, uh, you aren't perfect. You haven't kept the law perfectly. Um it's, it was actually when I was writing my dissertation, and none of it was on Paul. Uh, I had fortunately been steered clear of Paul. Someone said, "Don't, don't <laughs> incorporate Paul into this dissertation. You have enough going on here." But I was, you know, doing this on circumstance. Is just a holy cow. Has anybody ever thought that? This Jew in 2.17 isn't a Jew. It's a Gentile who thinks he's a Jew. And Paul's saying, sorry, uh, I got bad news for you. You've had, you've had minor uh, surgery and you're still just a Gentile. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I found out, as it turns out, there's an Icelandic scholar, Runar uh, Torsteinsson, who's, who's argued this uh, in a book um, on Romans. Uh, I would point out, I, so I so sorry, I haven't even answered your question. I think... <laughs> This is not a Jew. I think this is a Gentile who thinks he's a Jew. It's a Gentile who's Judaized to the point of, of circumcision, thinking he's converted and become a Jew. And Paul's saying, sorry, still a Gentile. Uh, that, that word, if you call yourself, uh, um, if you call yourself and then you die off a Jew, uh, is a word that Paul uses elsewhere in a slightly different form in 1 Corinthians 5, 11. And this is, I'll read it to you in English here. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, um, who is, and then Paul lists sort of a number of vices. Don't even eat with such a person. And so when Paul, at least there, he only uses this word a few times. There he uses it in a way where he clearly says, you call yourself this, but I don't think you're that at all. Mm -hmm. You're a false brother. And I think that's what Paul is doing in Romans 2, 17. And so this is really where, you know, when we're talking about uh, me and my take on Romans 2, this is really where I think I, I've really focused from Romans 2, 17 onwards, trying to figure out, okay, let's run with this theory. This is not a Jew. It's a Gentile who's Judaized. How do we read the next 12 or so verses? Um, so not a Jew, a Gentile who thinks he's a Jew. 
Okay. And then he, he proceeds in this section um, to lay out a number of things. Um, so he says, for example, uh, verse 21, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? Verse 22, you that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So we've got all these questions. What's the function of those questions here in his argument? Yeah, so good. Again, I think most people read this as Paul's trying to show, look, you boast in the law, but you don't keep it perfectly. And so he gives these examples of things uh, that this person is doing. That's possible that it's a, you haven't kept the law perfectly kind of argument, which is very common, I think, today in Christianity. I don't think Paul or, or ancient Jews would have bought that. No one thought you had to keep the law perfectly, uh, mm-hmm. but you still had to keep it. There's a verse in James or a passage in James, James 2 through, uh, well, let's say 10. Um, 11, where James is trying to make the point that partial observance to the law isn't sufficient. You can't just point to one thing I do uh, and say, I'm a good law keeper. You have to do other things. So James 2 talks about, um, well, 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That sounds very much, I think, like the modern reading of Romans 2. If you've broken it in one place, you've broken it everywhere. And I don't think that's quite Paul's argument. But so look at what James does here with his rhetorical example. For the one who said you shall commit adultery, adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So you can't just boast about not committing adultery when you've been just out killing your neighbor, murdering your neighbor, right? Uh, you have to do it all, James says. Paul doesn't do that in Romans 2. What he does is those who preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh, and so it's not, uh, you do this, but you don't do that. It's you're preaching and the very thing you're preaching, you're breaking. So it's really deep hypocrisy here in Paul's mind. And then, so the function is you preach this thing and you don't even do it yourself. And the three examples are the exact same, same uh, structure. You preach one thing, you don't do it. And then the text runs into uh, the question of circumcision. And that's, I think, what Paul's point is. This is what I argue. So Romans 2.25, this is what Paul says according to the NRSV. Circumcision is indeed of value if you do. Well, I'm going I'm to gonna on the fly uh, change some of the NRSV here to, to okay. kind of reflect what I think the Greek says. Sure. Uh, if you indeed keep or do the law. Uh, but if you were a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision or foreskin is actually the, the Greek there, which I think we should go with. You've sort of been re-foreskinned. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And again, I think how it's been taken is if you're a lawbreaker, if you're not a perfect, if you're not living the law perfectly, your circumcision is useless, which that's a huge claim to make. Of course, in Romans 3, 1, Paul says circumcision is a value. So I don't think he's saying circumcision itself is useless as soon as you break any little aspect of the law, Paul doesn't think you need to be perfect. In other words, no ancient Jew really did, as far as I know, um, to, to be a righteous person. I think following the structure of Romans 2, 21 through 23, the point is you preach X, but you don't do X. And Paul's claim is, I think in Romans 2, 25, you preach circumcision, but you're not even doing it yourself. And so in the following verses, Romans 2.25 and, and following, I think Paul is making a very careful, not easy to follow modern for moderns, 
argument about you're getting circumcised, but you're not actually getting circumcised correctly. And what which, makes it incorrect, just to clarify? Yeah, the key uh, for most, you know, the evidence we have, at least for most, most ancient Jews, we have to remember this, I'm back up, backing up, a lot of people got circumcised in antiquity. Greeks and Romans generally didn't, but there were other people, Arabs just to the east of, of Judea got circumcised. The Idumeans to the south were getting circumcised. Circumcision was actually a common practice and was very common in, in the ancient Near East in general. The, um, the Philistines stick out as being foreskinned, which is why they actually get called the uh, foreskin, the foreskin people in, in, Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew Bible. So what distinguishes covenantal Jewish Israelite circumcision is the fact that it occurs on the eighth day. So the timing is really important. Uh, you see this in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. You see it in Leviticus 12, 3. The, the, the boy needs to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so I think what Paul is trying to allude to, and actually he even mentions that he's an eighth dayer himself in Philippians 3. Uh, he's trying to say, you're a Gentile who's gotten circumcised. That looks really good, except you didn't even keep the law. Because the law has, it's, it's a, a complex set of regulations. And if you don't do them all, you haven't done it. If I go fill out a form for a driver's license and don't sign my name, I've applied, but I haven't applied successfully. And I think that's 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 a really bad analogy. <laughs> but it's something akin. It's something akin to that. If you don't do it properly, it doesn't count. Uh, and I think this is what Paul's claiming, which is actually really a rigorous position. But I think Paul is just convinced. Um, I think he's convinced a number of things, and one is the Jewish law absolutely just doesn't help non-Jews. It just doesn't do it. It doesn't help their condition. Uh, and that they think it does is just really deeply misguided. Uh, I think he thinks that a Gentile who gets circumcised is just still a Gentile and still ruled by flesh and sin. And so he's trying to convince them, you haven't kept the law. You haven't turned into a Jew. Uh, the book of Jubilees, which is a text from you know two centuries before Paul, makes roughly this argument. It's eighth-day circumcision that matters. And if you're uh, not circumcised on the eighth day, you're you're not part of the people. So there's no real potential for conversion. I think that's Paul's take. You're born a Jew, you're a Jew, you're born a Gentile, you're a Gentile. And that doesn't matter because God's saving Jews and Gentiles. Right. So don't even worry about the law. Right. I mean, if he's going to emphasize this eighth day rule regulation, yeah. then it really makes it very hard for any Gentile to become a Jew, right? I mean, to use your to use another analogy, what you'd yep. basically be saying is you can't be a citizen of a country unless you were born there. Because if you yep. come later, that's a different kind of entry into citizenship, and that doesn't count. Yeah, it's okay. it's akin to the U.S. Um, uh, you know, law that only a, an American born can be president. Right. Uh, so it's not, you know, no foreign born person, Arnold Schwarzenegger is never going to be president. Um, but they may have other functions, but they're never, there's something interesting there. And you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's what anthropologists call a very, a deeply essentialist and primordialist view of ethnicity that I think many of us probably on some level hold in certain ways, but in other ways we don't, I think that, you know, America and Canada, you know, we have a very different view on some levels of, of what it is to be American in it in, in Canadian. And sometimes we don't, you know, the idea that you can't sing the American national anthem in a different language, I think is, is already hinting at sort of a, a weird primordialist view of, Amer of American 
identity as well actually just white which of course white isn't you know it's not an ethnicity and in some levels in the same way that we talk about these ancient texts that are so deeply rooted in land and and a shared uh ancestor um but i think that's right this is this is a hard this is a hard line stance that paul has on identity so if we keep going then with verses 25 through 29 um with with your reading yeah, yeah. That, uh the jew cannot or sort of the gentile if he gets circumcised he doesn't become jewish um how do you read verses 20 what's going on in 25 to 29 like in 28 specifically for a person is not a jew who is one outwardly nor is true circumcision something external and physical this is the nrsv rather a person is a jew who is one inwardly and real circumcision is a matter of the heart it is spiritual and not literal such a person receives praise not from others but from god now you know, many scholars read this as a kind of redefinition of what it means to be Jewish, right? It's an internal spiritual matter. But you, you point out, and some others have noted, that the Greek is actually really kind of elliptical and that tr- the translations are often trying to smooth it out. Yeah. So can, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there with the translations? What, why you think they may be obscuring what Paul is saying? Yep. I'm going to... Uh, Take the license to address one quick thing first, and then I'll get to 28 and 29. And so this, I think, it relates to the, the, the interceding verses here a bit. I think it is very common. I don't think. I know it's very common reading, reading you know, scholarship, but I imagine it's very common at sort of the lay level and, and, and level of, of uh, clergy to read a text like Genesis 17 and think, oh, um, all ancient Jews thought this law applies to everybody. Everybody should get circumcised. Um, it's just a law for everybody. And I think this is really, it's an implicit thing that drives how we read texts and then how we read Paul. And so when we read Paul saying, you don't need to get circumcised, we're reading, oh, you don't need to keep the law. You're breaking the law. I think what Paul's actually saying is a little bit different than that. It's not even a little bit different, quite a bit different. This law does not apply to you. You're a Gentile reading Genesis 17, and this law, this right does not apply to you. So if you go and do it, it's not just that you can't do it rightly. Uh, you're not doing it rightly yet because you're not getting done on the eighth day. It's that it doesn't apply to you. It would be like, um, I'm trying to think of an analogy here, but uh, it, it would it would be like me driving as though I'm living in the UK, even though I do not live in the UK. I'm in the British Commonwealth, but we rightly drive on the on the right side of the road. Um, it's it's just mayhem. And so Paul thinks, and I think that's what he's trying to get across in 27 is even as you try to keep circumcision, even though as you try to keep the law, you're actually still breaking it in the very act of keeping it, trying to keep it, you're breaking it. And you're going to be condemned by the uncircumcised person who's living righteously. So I think that's sort of the background. Romans 28 and 29, uh, I am indebted to a a friend who's no longer in academia, but was a fellow PhD student with me. who, who actually recommended this trans, translation of Romans 2, 28 to 29. So Ronnie read it, and I will stress uh, what's unique about this text is how often it puts things like true in or real. And if, if you know Greek, you can look all day long, and you're not going to find those words in Romans 2, 28 through 29, but basically every translation does this. And so then the question becomes, there's real circumcision and there's not real circumcision, heart and 
flesh. Uh, and there's a real Jew and there's a not real Jew. And it turns out that the fleshly Jew is not the real Jew. Uh, so there's a strong sense of redefinition here in, in this reading of Romans 2, 28 to 29. Circumcision gets radically, re- in the words of Tom Wright, radically redefined. And Jewishness gets radically redefined. Um, if you're a Jew reading this, I would say that I wouldn't be surprised if you felt not a little bit erased by that reading. And this has been very common. We're the true Israel, true Jews, uh, so on and so forth. And it erases uh, you know, those who identify as, as Jewish. Um, well, in, in Paul's words, you know, in a fleshly, in a fleshly capacity. Um, so I don't think it's about true Jewishness and false Jewishness. It's and this is the last part, and this often gets left off. Uh, and it gets turned into its own sentence in the NRSV. I think it's, it's all one sentence um, in the Greek. The point is not who's a true Jew and who's not a true Jew, but who has God's praise? That's the question. Uh, who has God's praise? Is it the person who is uh, circumcised in the heart or the one uh, circumcised in the flesh? And for Paul, and he doesn't make this up, this is already in Jeremiah 9, for instance, circumcision is good for Jews, but it doesn't make them good Jews. It just is part of their Jewish identity. To be a good Jew or a good Israelite, to be pleasing to God is to actually act righteously, to live righteously, to have one's heart circumcised, and to live accordingly, um, which is exactly what, what uh, Jeremiah 9 says, that Israel circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart. Uh, and that's what God wants. So, the question is, how do you please God? And if, so getting back to the point of the, this Gentile uh, interlocutor who wants to go undergo circumcision or who has undergone circumcision, there's some great news. You don't need to be circumcised to please God. This is a commandment just for Jews. And it doesn't make them uh, necessarily pleasing to God. It might be part of that, but it's not, it's necessary, but insufficient for them. You don't need to be circumcised Gentile readers. You can please God through circumcision of the heart. That is ultimately what pleases God. So it's kind of like a Christian saying, you know, being baptized isn't what pleases God. Living a life that, uh, you know, follows Jesus is pleasing to God. That's not to dismiss the importance of baptism uh, or, you know, any other thing one wants to point to, but it's, it's that this baptism is reflected in uh, day-to-day living. So I think that's what Paul's saying in Romans 2, 28 through 29. Not real Jew versus false Jew, but who pleases God and what doesn't at least necessarily please God. Mm, Great. I think that's a good place to conclude our discussion here in in clarifying what you see going on here. And you've demonstrated for us really well the importance of digging deeply into these texts and the value of talking them through with others uh, and wrestling with them. So we're grateful for you to you for doing that with us. We just have one more question for you before we finish up here. Uh, One of the things we like to do at the end of our episodes uh, is ask our guests to give us a blurb, right? The blurb is a genre that biblical scholars seem to have basically performed. Affected. Uh, and so uh, you may have blurbed several books in your in the past, but this doesn't have to be a book. If you'd like to blurb something else, a TV show or a movie or a life hack or whatever you think other, our listeners might find helpful, uh, what would you have to blurb for us? 
Yeah. Oh, good question. Uh, you know, I'd say most most recently, the thing that comes to mind uh, that I've that I've read most recently is is Brittany Wilson's. Um, Brittany's a, a associate professor at Duke Divinity School. Her most recent book on Luke Acts, which is called um, The Embodied God. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff happening right now in thinking about God's body or bodies hmm. and uh, corporeality and things like that. And, and Brittany's doing some really interesting stuff in Luke Acts that I think uh, are going to shift the ground on on how we think about uh, God in these these texts. Great. Well, Matt, thanks for taking the time to walk us through a really difficult text. Ah. <laughs> And to those of you who are listening, uh, thanks for tuning in to the Two Testaments. If you've enjoyed this guided journey through Romans chapter 2 and the identity of the you, um, well, you can find our website at thetwotestaments.com where you can subscribe and you can find us on Twitter at the number two testament and on facebook we have both a facebook group and a page where you can participate and ask your own questions uh, maybe the riddle hasn't been solved and you have you know <laughs> some itching questions that you'd like us to think about and talk about you can put them there and please wherever you listen to podcasts give us like a great rating i know? mean it's not enough to be a hearer of the podcast that's right, right? But and, it, and say yeah. oh i like that you got to be a doer also <laughs> You should go and you should put a comment yes, in and, and yes. give us a good rating if That'd you thought it was helpful. So yes. we, and we'd really appreciate that. All right. Thanks. Well, until next time, take care. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion. 